0: You are listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Howard Koh, the Harvey V. Feinberg Professor of the Practice of Public Health Leadership. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Friday, January 8th. All right. Dr. Koh, do you have any opening remarks for us?
1: Uh, Sure, Nicole. Thank you so much for hosting this and welcome, everybody. It's nice to see any of you again. Uh, We continue to be in, in an astonishing time in our public health history as we enter a new year, Uh, you know that yesterday we had a record number of deaths from COVID with the uh, figures exceeding 4,000 nationwide for the first time ever. And you may know that we ended 2020 with COVID being the leading cause of death in the United States uh, for the month of uh, December. Uh, I Actually, I wrote a little article in the Journal of the American Medical Association commenting on that and reviewing the trajectory where this previously unknown condition uh, has now caused so many deaths that it's the the leading cause of death as 2020 ended. So the trends, unfortunately, are continuing now into January 2021. uh, But the good news, of course, is that two vaccines have been authorized uh, by FDA and of vaccine rollout started in mid-December in our country. Uh, That rollout has been slower than expected, leading to uh, much initial frustration that we can discuss more uh, through this call and beyond. If I can say I have lived through many of these um, public health and prevention efforts as the former commissioner of public health here in Massachusetts and then as assistant secretary for health. When you stop and think about it, New vaccine efforts are part of what we do in public health and they are never easy. Uh, prevention sounds easy, but it's not. And so this is a time where public health, usually an invisible system is now very visible to all of us because its success will, depend, uh, will determine whether our country gets back to any sense of normalcy by this summer or early fall. Uh, right now, about uh, 21 million doses of vaccines have been shipped and distributed, uh, but uh, only about 6 million doses have been administered. And so there's a lot of debates about how uh, we can make those numbers go up. Only, only about 30% of doses that have been received at the state and local level have been administered so far. Uh, and you know that we're still Uh, in most states in the first priority group of of recipients, that is uh, frontline healthcare workers and uh, people in long-term care facilities. So um, going through this process in the future will depend on a state and local public health system that is supported uh, by the public and policy makers. About a week ago, Dr. Mike Frazier and I of ASTHO co-wrote an opinion piece in CNN talking about how the success of our vaccination efforts for COVID will depend on a successful state and public health (laughs) infrastructure. Uh, That infrastructure has been cut back for far too long. Uh, It's been under-resourced and overlooked. Uh, Fortunately, just in the last number of days, you know that Congress approved a new coronavirus relief package of some $900 billion. Some 8 billion of that is targeted for vaccine distribution and infrastructure, but that money is coming uh, after all this rollout has begun, as you well know. So that infusion of funds uh, will be important, but it is only considered a down payment. And uh, we have to make sure that we have the system work well to make prevention come alive and bring this country back to health in 2021. And then in the middle of all this, of course, we have a transition in administrations with a new administration uh, taking place in about 12 days. And the president-elect has made a number of commitments about how he will conduct the pandemic response after he's inaugurated. So we can talk about that more too. Um, so at this point, maybe I should just pause and take any questions and thank you so much for being part of this press conference. Thank
0: you, Dr. Koh.
2: All right, looks like our first question. Hello. Hi, go ahead. Uh, can you hear me? OK. Hi, thank you, Professor. So I have two questions. My first one is because you know right now, both the UK and Denmark have extended the time for the second dose. But the FDA just stated again that people should not consider the extension right now. So what do you think of this? Do you agree to that to get the first shot as quickly as we can in a larger population is more important right now or the other opinions? Yeah.
1: Okay, so if I understand, can you say that one more time? I think I got it all, but I just wanna make sure. (laughs) Sorry.
2: Okay, yeah, sure. So because both the UK and Denmark have extended time for the second dose. Mm -hmm. And but FDA just stated again, that people should not consider this, should not consider the extension right now. And what what's your opinion on this? Do you think we should uh, take on the second dose later? And because the first do- dose is enough again, it's enough? And do you agree that uh, right now to, because of the uh, variant of the COVID-19, so we, we should get the first shot as quickly as we can in a larger population?
1: Got it, okay. All right. So we've already uh, delved into uh, the most dynamic debate since uh, the vaccine rollout began. So uh, for those of you who have not followed uh, this daily, let let me just summarize the status of uh, events here. Uh, You know that the FDA in the United States authorized the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines based on the phase three trials that had two doses that were three weeks apart in the Pfizer trial and four weeks apart for the Moderna trial. And as you know, the good news from both of them that was uh, extensively studied by outside experts was that the efficacy was excellent, about 95% in both trials. Um, The safety profile was uh, very strong, um, and so that was also very encouraging. And so based on that, the FDA under this administration has encourage that dosing schedule uh, based on that concrete data uh, that was analyzed and and then uh, recommended by outside groups as well as uh, the US government. There are places, uh, as um, our colleague here has referred, uh, particularly in England, where uh, the the strategy has been to uh, not hold back on any initial doses. and adhere to that strict timeline, but rather release as many doses as possible initially. Because even if you have one dose in those two trials, the, the uh, efficacy is still substantial, maybe 50 to 60% uh, instead of 95%. And the argument would be that if you give a single dose, you, you would still have uh, substantial protection, even though it's lower, and, and reach more people. So that debate is now uh, very much alive and well here in the United States. And it's a very dynamic, fast-moving area. You could argue, uh, on one hand, that we should follow uh, very conservatively the results of the phase three trials and and stick to that two-dose schedule three weeks or four weeks apart. Or alternatively, you could argue that a single dose offers lower, but still substantial protection, and and why hold uh, half of those doses back? So uh, I believe, actually, I need confirmation on this, but I have read one report that the incoming administration uh, has just just announced literally half an hour ago that they are uh, leaning toward the the strategy that um, promotes the single-dose and that we will be hearing more details about that shortly. Uh, So what that means uh, also is that they looked at several trials that were just published in the Annals of Internal Medicine a couple of days ago based on modeling, and those trials uh, suggested that that, um, the single-dose strategy could be um, more effective uh, from a population point of view in in reducing uh, numbers of uh, symptomatic cases. So we just have to follow this very, very carefully. I think from the broad point of view, that the challenge, of course, is that the dose administration tempo has been um, much lower than the targets that we uh, wanted to reach. Uh, we, we need as a country to have about a million doses administered a day to come anywhere close to opening up the country um, uh, to uh, some sense of normalcy in the late summer or early fall. Uh, right now, the, the, the numbers of doses being administered is far below that ideal number. So that's a broad summary of a very complex and dynamic area. So I think we just have to watch this carefully, um, wait for more science. Uh, also, we need to make sure that the, from a broad point of view, that every aspect of this vaccine system is working at the highest level from production, to distribution to administration. Uh, I am very concerned that state and local public health officials are pretty exhausted right now. And now they're expected to ramp up and uh, embark on the most ambitious vaccination campaign this country has ever seen and make it a success. Uh, they they will do so, if I can say, because that's what public health does. Um, the field always rises to the challenge. And so, um, my plea though is that we support these public health officials at the state and local level and give them the recognition and resources that they need and deserve right now we need to help them help us
2: uh, yeah thank you and my second question is like um because you know many experts criticize the british governments they fail to detect the mutate the mutant virus in time until the spread all over the Britain and all over the world and cannot be controlled. So what lessons should we learn from it in America for the policymaker's point of view or like for the uh, established whole public health system? Should we establish a monitoring, a monitoring mechanism to detect any mutations of the virus so that we can respond in time in the future?
1: OK, you're asking excellent questions. And, and yes, that first variant was uh, described from the UK, um, not, that, not because it's just in the UK, because we've now documented that it's in dozens of countries around the world, including and especially the United States. But uh, it was first described by the UK because um, genomic sequencing is, is more uh, common in, in that country than it is here. So. In fact, uh, our scientists here in this country have since uh, over the last several months uh, ramped up routine uh, genomic sequencing to try to assess better the the trends in this new variant that's been described from uh, the UK and and, uh, also a related one from uh, South Africa. Yes, that it should be part of monitoring for the future. And you you all know that these new variants have been described to be more transmissible, uh, but fortunately not more fatal as of yet. So uh, some would argue that this is another reason to get those initial doses of vaccines out to as many people as possible uh, right now and not not hold back for the second dose.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, Next question.
3: Thank you so much, Dr. Coe, um, for taking our calls. Um, I wanted to follow up on the the second dose question. Um, I believe what um, people are talking about is not doing away with the second dose, just delaying when people would get the second dose. And I'm wondering um, if you're confident, given what you know about the way the supply chain is working, that it that it would be safe for people to get that first dose and that it might be a delay but not an inordinate delay in them getting the second dose and in 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 connection with that w- in which scenario do you think the public health system would be the most strained trying to get more doses in, uh, trying to get the first dose into more people or sticking with the current situation? And then I have another (laughs) (laughs) follow-up.
1: Okay, uh, these are excellent and difficult questions without easy answers right now. So just to start from the beginning, what what makes this COVID vaccination effort so challenging? Uh, Has to do with so many factors, but one of them is that the first two vaccines now authorized would require two doses You know, in contrast, for example, seasonal flu, that's usually a a one-shot effort. When you ask people to come back for a second dose at at a specific timetable, as uh, we have asked the American public, at least in these initial weeks, it it already complicates a a, um, a very ambitious effort. You, You can imagine the logistics that might be involved to remind people to come back and what happens if people forget Uh, Those those sorts of um, logistic issues are all part of what public health has to do right now at the state and local level, in in addition to many, many other dimensions of orchestrating this vaccination effort. So again, one one could argue that uh, from a logistic point of view that it might be easier just to recommend a single dose for now, which is offering, as I said, a lower but still substantial protection and that would also ease some of the logistic strain. Uh, but the counter argument could be we have uh, two vaccines that are excellent in terms of their efficacy. Um, and w- why not give uh, maximum protection to, to people uh, in the way the, the studies have demonstrated to date? So So much of this is going to depend on what our supply chain is going to look like over the next number of months. Uh, we know that we've had some 21 million doses or so uh shipped out but we all know that for this whole effort to work the whole vaccination system from invention to injection has got to be absolutely working well and every pass of the baton from the federal state to local level needs to work well and in fact my overall observation on the opening couple weeks is that you know we need once again in this pandemic a one government approach that unifies coordination from federal state and local officials Uh, everyone is trying their best but it's not clear that that coordination at the highest level has occurred yet and it's got to improve if we're going to get um, to the targets of some 85 percent of the population vaccinated and achieving herd immunity
3: so it's sounding like you're preferring at this point that the one dose and then deal with whether to give a second dose later to happen let me know if that's right but i have another,
1: another i would one. i uh, i think the um i think the answer is uh not uh definitive either way right now okay, um, there, okay. there there have been some Modeling studies that are literally a couple days old, so, so people are still trying to digest them, and, it, and it's and it's not based on clinical studies, which is what the two dose phase three trials were all about that we followed so carefully. Okay. So my my, my we're, other we are going to continue to have dynamic debates on this for a number of months, is my is my guess. <laughs>
3: gotcha. My other question has to do with people that have started to sign up for and register to get the vaccine, specifically some in the 75 plus 1B group. Mm -hmm. Um, We had a report that in one case, as a person was signing up, they were asked whether or not they were on blood dinners. And once they checked the box, yes, that said they were taking warfarin or whatever other blood thinner it was, they were kind of rejected from signing up for a vaccine and weren't able to do it. I'm wondering if you're hearing about that happening on a widespread basis and what you think of that. Because what we've seen from, or what I've seen from FDA guidance was that you should tell the person giving you the vaccine that you're taking a blood thinner, but not that you would not be able to get the vaccine and that you should you know, check with your doctor. So I just wanted to, to see if you've heard about this as well.
1: I have not heard about that as an issue. Uh, so I'll, I'll have to hear, uh, look into that more. But I I have not heard that as a um, a, a reason to exclude anyone. I I think it would be a reason to monitor them uh, more carefully after the injection. And and of course, uh, we are expected to monitor uh, attendees for 15 minutes after the injection for side effects and uh, anaphylaxis, which which fortunately has been rare so far. So that could be another reason to monitor carefully. But I, I don't think that's a reason for exclusion right now.
3: Okay. Thank you so much. You. I, I will say, to, to, if you
0: need somebody to check on that, uh, I can see if there's a clinician that would be available or send you to one of the hospitals, and they may have a little more information about that topic. That would be great. Thank okay. You so if much. you could just send me an email so I have it in my inbox, otherwise, yeah. if it's not my inbox, it goes out of my head. So yeah. <laughs> I appreciate Absolutely. it.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Sure
0: thing. Uh, next oh, and You're all set, right, Dana? Yes, thank you. Okay, perfect. Uh, next question.
4: Hello, hi. Thanks for uh, taking my question. I have rather uh, an ethical uh, uh, question which is related also, of course, to, um, to the accessibility of the vaccine. So, uh, um, I mean, I guess one of the reasons why uh, uh, there is a shortage of uh, doses and, and people, they cannot get the second and the first and second shot in a short lapse of time is that uh, basically uh, governments are relying on uh, production capacity of the pharmaceutical company which have the license. So, I would like to know if you, as a scientist, um, uh, think that um, a way to uh, expand the production uh, and so accelerate uh, um, the release of doses and uh, the possibility of people to get the first and the second dose is to um, uh, basically um, adopt uh, a um, a compulsory licensing system where pharmaceutical companies. we had to uh, basically uh, issue licenses to uh, third-party manufacturers which could uh, uh, contribute to uh, increase the production. And I think no government uh, is actually doing that. Uh, there was a proposal by India South Africa at uh, the, 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 the World Trade Organization at uh, the Council of the Treaty on Intellectual Property. And basically all Western countries, including the US and Europe, they opposed. So I'm wondering whether the government are not actually uh, defending the interest of pharmaceutical companies other than the act of their citizens. Uh, As I said, uh, uh, third party production will increase uh, probably uh, overall production and the possibility of people to get uh, doses. So that's the question.
1: Okay, I I hope I got all that. Let let me just um, say that there are lots of uh, ways to potentially increase supply Um, here in our country the uh, current administration embarked on Operation Warp Speed, which has brought us to this point, and gave uh, funding and, and support and collaboration with uh, six pharmaceutical uh, companies. And, and you know the first two um, that are messenger RNA vaccines have been authorized, and that's what we're distributing around uh, the US right now. And there have been uh, negotiations by the current administration to, to buy more <clears throat> doses and uh, you know we can get into the details of all that. Uh, there has been discussion, and actually the president-elect has an- announced that he wants to leverage <clears throat> our Defense Production Act uh, more fully and, and maximize I- any supply uh, through that mechanism. Um, in the pandemic so far, uh, President Trump has leveraged the Defense Production Act um, at some points or earlier on to increase ventilator production, uh, but but not throughout the whole process with respect to uh, PPE and masks and, and now um, vaccines. So th- those are the efforts uh, and suggestions that are being debated in our country right now, particularly as a new administration comes in.
4: Okay, but I have a follow up question. You, uh, you 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 are not, you, I mean, you don't agree with the possible uh, weaver on the intellectual property exclusivity to uh, to third-party uh, manufacturer to produce vaccines for people.
1: Yeah, I, I have not heard about I have not heard about that option. So I'm sorry if I can't answer uh, say more about that. No, okay. I, th- I think you'll be I think you'll be hearing under a Biden administration more about the Defense Production Act as a possible way to maximize as much supply, not just for vaccines, but uh, also for all all. Um, for, for masks and PPE and gloves and other uh, items that have been intermittently in short supply.
4: And then um, a more scientific question, um, which is the, the range of uh, mutation of, of the virus, uh, which uh, basically um, uh, would uh, make uh, the current vaccine uh, uh, ineffective. I mean, there is a, a range of mutation which can be uh, tolerated by uh, the vaccine or uh, and, and any 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 fractional mutation uh, in the in the binding domain of the virus can actually be uh, so important to basically neutralize the effect of uh, the vaccine.
1: Okay, I'll have to defer the specific answer uh, to one of my immunology colleagues. Uh, you know, we know that uh, m- mutations occur um, all the time with uh, viruses and coronaviruses. We, we also know that as of now, there's no no evidence that the uh, Coronavirus uh, in this country or anywhere is escaping the um, neutralizing antibody uh, uh, production that, that's induced by vaccination. So that's that's good news from a public health point of view. Uh, but in terms of the exact number of mutations, I'd have to defer to a basic science colleague. OK, thank you.
0: Uh, And if you have some questions specifically about um, the Defense Production Act, there is uh, somebody over in Harvard Business School that I could try to connect you with, and he would know more about that act and how it could be used.
4: Yeah, we'll be connected for that. Thank you.
0: Okay. Same thing. Send me an email. (laughs) All right. Uh, Next question.
5: Hi there. Thank you. So my question may be too specific um, and not exactly your niche and if that's the case I apologize but according to the new IHme model Florida will hit a new daily death peak on the 26th with about 181 deaths a day and curiously there's a steep drop after that in our daily deaths it just goes straight on down um, and that drop is also visible in IHme's national model as well. So do you have any ideas as to why that drop exists you know could it be the end of this holiday rush
6: i'm
1: not sure i can answer that one um, I, I think your speculation is uh potentially accurate um you know we, we've had a spike unfortunately uh, several weeks after thanksgiving and now several weeks uh, in the opening weeks after the, ho- the christmas and new year's holidays so that could be one factor uh i, I don't i know dr murray well the uh, head of our ihme uh, IHMA, uh and the global burden of disease efforts. He, he's an outstanding scientist. And I've watched his models carefully. You know, In those models, he also factors in mask usage, whether that's going up or down, or the social distancing, whether that's going up or down. And then um, most recently, of course, um, increasing numbers of uh, vaccine doses administered. So my, my guess is um, I, I haven't seen that exact drop, so I'll have to go back and look. But um, my, my guess is the model is factoring all, all those uh, timing after uh, the holidays have uh, receded and uh, perhaps the initial impact of, of the vaccine. But, but let, me, let me check on that one too.
5: Okay, and since I'm here, <laughs> let me ask you a public health question since that's your thing. Mm-hmm. Um, here in Florida, you know we have a, a more unique system in how we're rolling this out through the public health Um, I just want to know your your take on that you know we've we've got a very uh, governor centered approach where he's making all the decisions and it's trickling down to the departments of health and I know that's not standard Um, departments of health usually take care of their own counties and that kind of thing and in my area in particular um, Southwest Florida we have a lot higher percentage of older people. So the governor's uh, executive order that 65 and plus can get the vaccine is actually limiting in a way the 80 plus people that can get it because they can't sit in their cars all night and they're not as technologically advanced to sign up for these online. So I just want to get your thoughts on some of those things.
1: Okay, you're asking a couple questions in there. Uh, One is uh, when the... uh, charge comes to the states to implement vaccination, does that occur in a uniform way across the state or county by county or city by city? That varies uh, across the country. And historically, that's been the case um, because our public health system is uh, generally fairly, fairly decentralized that way. So if in Florida, it's um, more centralized, that that's that's something that I would defer to to your state leaders. I think the other question that you are raising, though, is, is an interesting one, which is um, when you open it up to people over 65, uh, as um, as has been done in Florida, will you have supply meet the demand? And will the end result be a, an experience that's viewed as a convenient and uh, accessible and respectful to everyone. That, that's the challenge for all local public health officials, because the, the, the goal is to have the limited supply anytime, uh, achieve the greatest good for the greatest number. So um, as one who is watching what's happening in Florida with the rest of the country, uh, there may need to be um, uh, some adjustments in um, how the various priority groups are coming forward by by the public health officials uh, because there's been a lot of attention to to the people waiting in lines for hours and hours. Uh, You'll have to tell me more about whether it's changed in recent days, Uh, but that is one of the challenges of trying to take limited supply and and meet um, demand in times like this.
6: Okay, thank you. Uh, Next question. Hi, thank you, um, Dr. Koh. Here in Dallas, there is quite, as I'm sure in most cities, there's quite a disparity of where the COVID cases are occurring geographically. And of course, they are occurring and affecting mostly, um, um, you know, Black and Brown uh, citizens and people who work in, you know, essential jobs, et cetera, everything we all know. Um, so, my, my question is now that the vaccines are rolling out, what would be the ideal way for public health officials to monitor who is actually getting the vaccine you know their age their gender their comorbidities their home zip code and what do you know about how this is taking place you know anywhere in the country so in other words to me it would seem like we would want to know as a city or a county or a state where people are getting vaccinated and if we we need to be checking Whether the hotspots are getting vaccinated and I would just like your thoughts on that, you know what, what is the ideal and then what do you know about what is actually happening and how that's being monitored. Thank you.
1: Okay, that's a great question and it also has many parts.
6: (laughs) Yes, I know. Thank you.
1: And actually my CNN op ed that uh, that I've co written with Dr. Frazier addresses some of that. Okay. So, so ideally, you know, one one of the many parts of orchestrating the ideal response by state and local public health officials is, is to have an information system that's um, uh, real time and accurate and collects all the information you just mentioned, so that on a daily basis we have accurate, updated information about where doses have been administered, you know, who has received it by age and by zip code and uh, by community, uh, this is especially important because communities of color have been really hard hit uh, by this pandemic, as you you have noted. And I'm I'm very uh, concerned about that, not, not only as a public health official, but as a uh, person of color myself and a son of immigrants. Yes. Now, so many uh, public health departments have archaic infrastructure. Um, and uh, there are lo- many local health departments that are still tracking these outcomes by pencil and paper. So th- this is why we need to support our public health uh, departments. Uh, I'm hoping some of that federal money coming in will address that as soon as possible, because we, we all need updated information to make sure that these uh, vaccinations are occurring at the right place, at the right time, for the right population, um, and there are some challenges to that right now.
6: Do you know of any places that it, it is occurring correctly? Like like for example, in, in Massachusetts, um, it's a smaller state than Texas. I, I know they have, I've seen some of their data. It's better than what we have available here in Texas. Um, are, are they tracking by zip code or, or precinct or like is anyone doing this correctly. So we really know where the vaccine needs to go and and how to deliver messages to those people or which churches to set them up in, you know, the clinics up in, et cetera. Like how is, do you know of any place that is doing this correctly?
1: Uh, I'm going to say that uh, there is no state that has an ideal information system right now in terms of public health, in terms of the real-time public health information that we need. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. we saw this already uh, with, with the testing, slow rollout of testing and all the confusion about testing in the opening number of months. I mean, getting that information from, getting race, ethnicity information from public health laboratories weren't required by the CDC until like June or July of last year, you know, yeah. m- months after the pandemic start, started. And, you know, we have a country where uh, we've spent a, a lot of money uh, on information systems in hospitals. That's very valuable. Uh, but we need similar attention to... Um, building most robust information systems for communities and for for public health departments
6: well and, then how, how are we ever going to know that enough people have been vaccinated like are we just going to have to watch the the course of the disease and see cases go down or, or how do we know
1: well we will we will get the information uh, but there may be a lag um and in fact some federal officials are saying that the, the doses administered numbers are actually higher if you if you listen to them they'll say, the numbers are actually higher than uh, reported because it, there's a lag in the reporting systems and need more mm-hmm. time to catch up. And, I, and I, I think that's probably true to some degree. Okay. So, but I, I think your overall point is excellent. Uh, and, you know, most people don't think about this until times like this. Um, you know, we, we need the best information possible from a population po- based point of view uh, by community, by, by neighborhood, by uh, race, ethnicity. Uh, and we need that in real time. And it's got to be reliable. And, and um, you know, we, we just don't have those robust robust systems right now. And we need more attention. So
6: OK, and I'm sorry if I keep repeating. But so how will we know whether the vaccination effort is going well? I,
1: I think we will get the information over time. It's just it, there, there will be reporting delays. It, it, OK. It's unfortunately, part of trying to do the best we can with what we have. And so this is why, again, in the op-ed, Dr. Frazier and I make a plea for uh, finally uh, you know, giving the resources to public health officials who have faced so much resistance in the last 11 months um, to, to help them do their job and then get people like you the information that you and we all need.
6: OK, thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, next question.
7: Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Cohen. Nicole also taking my question. I mentioned in terms of the payroll out, some of the broader structural issues like um, like coordination at the federal level or the lack thereof, like the underfunding of public health departments. I'd like to ask what you think might be the one or two key drags in terms of what what's happening on the ground. You mentioned the 30% um, mm-hmm. Vaccination versus allocation. What do you think are the key factors once the once the vaccine is there on the ground at the sites, at the nursing homes, at the hospitals? That's keeping that allocation number low. You mentioned the reporting lag CD, that CDC has mentioned. People have talked about issues like hesitancy. So, what do you think are the one or two key things at that level that's keeping the pace from 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 accelerating like it should be? And what are you seeing being done or could be done to um, to solve those problems. I may have a follow-up depending on on your response to that.
1: Yeah, th- thank you for that question. So, you know, that could be answered in so many ways, but the highest level, uh, we need federal, state, and local public health officials working in a one government proactive approach uh, with a- as much advanced planning as possible because at the state and local level, as we're all seeing now, uh, they are responsible for identifying clinics and facilities and sites and then making sure that those sites have the staff supplies space and storage considerations required to make this all go forward Uh, we've already mentioned the complexities of having two doses instead of one the the special storage needs ultra cold storage considerations for the pfizer vaccine that requires purchase of expensive freezers that um, uh, may not be an option except for major hospitals in, in big cities, for example, um, and so and then uh, here, Andy, a huge issue that that concerns me is that the broader communication nationally about how we work together as these various priority groups get uh, introduced, and 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 whose turn it is, and and now. Uh, what, what the strategy is going forward so that we can all support each other and, and get through this as a nation. Uh, that, that communication effort has, has just barely started. Uh, there's an uh, effort by the Ad Council and the COVID Collaborative uh, that's in the works, and we are hearing that there will be a, a, a communication campaign coming out of HHS now now in the next administration uh, because it hasn't really come out in the current one. Uh, that communication effort should have come out months ago. And in fact, I've advocated in previous op-eds that we should have built on the uh, flu vaccination efforts because you know that infrastructure does exist, but it requires broadening it and, and expanding it and then really having federal government support the state and local officials who are absolutely overwhelmed. So that's, that's my uh, longer answer to your simple question. At this point, there's more discussion that the president elect, for example, has um, mentioned about having more federal sponsorship of uh, establishing and uh, um, implementing sites. Uh, some discussions about having more mobile units, uh, more so called mega sites like stadiums. Uh, I think all those uh, options are uh, worth discussing, but uh, if I can say that planning should have happened months ago and it's becoming, unfortunately, cl- uh, clear that it, it, it uh, wasn't at the level that we all needed.
7: If I can follow up briefly, when you talk about the communications issues, are you talking primarily about communicating to people uh, where, when, and how they can get the vaccine? Or are you talking about the kind of communication effort that goes into convincing people to take it in the first place? And as uh-huh. a sideline to that, I'd like to get your thoughts on some of the reports about very low take up, especially among the frontline healthcare workers and nursing home staff has that been an issue in the numbers and what can be done and is being done, do you think, to, um, to address that?
1: Yeah, so the answer to all your questions is yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we haven't had uh, enough communications. Well, there's obviously broad concern that's been uh, public for months about uh, hesitancy in general uh, about vaccines. Uh, I mean, that's been rising over years, driven a lot by social media. And then that concern uh, swirled around the FDA authorization process. I think the FDA actually led that process very well and uh, really rallied the scientific uh, community to, to support the, the authorization moving forward. Uh, but the hesitancy is still a challenge, and it even affects health professionals. And Andy, as you pointed out, it's, um, it's been um, a major factor for the low rates of immunizations in uh, long-term care facilities, particularly among staff. So that, that theme is gonna come up um, more strongly uh, as, as this whole rollout continues. And we gotta watch that carefully. This is why, uh, Andy, I, I have often um, suggested that we need as many societal leaders coming forward uh, to uh, support the vaccination effort the, the way that, uh, you know, the president-elect, the, the vice president Pence, um, Dr. Fauci got their vaccinations on camera. Uh, we, we need the support of business leaders and school leaders and uh, faith-based leaders are coming forward, uh, have been very helpful in past vaccination efforts like like measles uh, in 2019. So uh, th- this is an all hands on deck effort. It's going to involve all, all parts of society.
7: Thank you, Dr. Thank you. Uh,
0: Next question.
3: Hi, thank you so much for taking time with us. Uh, Just a quick question. The CDC's vaccine tracker shows the vaccine distribution per 100,000 people. And I noticed that the states don't have this even distribution. So I was wondering if you know why and if it's like the um, earlier that we saw with PPE, are states having to compete for the vaccines coming from the manufacturers?
1: Okay, that's an excellent question. So again, I've I've now written actually, <laughs> if you want, to know, I've now written six op-eds through the COVID um, re- response, and my very first one last May or April uh, was in Stat uh, Stat S T A T, and the title was something like "We need one, not a fifty-state strategy for, for for a pandemic response." and uh, So for the vaccine rollout, as we've seen for so many other parts of uh, the pandemic response, it's been uh, very much left to the states to um, take up the responsibility for for making public health come alive on the ground. And as you pointed out, we, we did have very unfortunate examples of states competing against one another. So we need the federal coordination and leadership now for the vaccine rollout, because the last thing we want to do is have uh, states competing against each other. In fact, it would be better, of course, if one state uh, was doing well, another neighboring state was uh, struggling, that the the states helped one another, and it's not clear that such a mechanism exists right now. Some, Some regions have had their governors try to create coalitions, and that got some attention a number of months ago, but we haven't heard much about that lately. So I think that's some something very important that the new administration will have to uh, take on. And so make sure that we're having a united response for the United States.
3: Do you know, just to follow up, do you know if the states are having to have contracts with the distribution or do they have the contracts with CDC, the distributors, or or do they have the contracts with uh, CDC?
1: Uh, I, I cannot answer that definitively. Um, let me just say though that, you know, the, the process that goes on occurs every every fall with um, flu, flu vaccine, and it's usually through private distributors. But again, another reason why this year is more complex is we've had with Operation Warp Speed, the Department of Defense involved. Uh, and, but they've, And they've also worked with private distributors. So for this particular pandemic, uh, I'm not ex- exactly sure if that same infrastructure is being followed or altered or changed. It's, it's also added to the complexity, and if I can say, some of the confusion that you heard from uh, General Perna.
3: Well, thank you so much again for your time.
6: Thank you.
0: And while we're waiting for to see if anybody else has any questions, I have a couple for you. Um, so, one of the things that I have heard about uh, some people being concerned about is a black market, you know, just very elemental economic, short supply, a lot of demand. Um, people will do what they can to get. Hold of whatever's in short supply. Have you? Do you know any um, protections or anything like that to prevent something like a black market or uh, people jumping the line to get a vaccine before they should be? They're slated to be.
1: So again, in a time of scarcity and limited supplies, uh, this is the risk. And so I'm not surprised to hear that theme, Uh, Nicole. And I've heard some sporadic reports. Um, So we will have to track that going forward, and so this is where uh, public health and law enforcement and all of government at the local, state, and federal level have got to work together again. Uh, This just can't be left to the local public health officials to be um, enforcing this. I I think the public health officials uh, are... Best at communicating uh, the priority groups and the process, and wh- where to get your vaccines, and then have the, have the support of other parts of uh, of, of uh, government, especially uh, law law enforcement, and and then uh, state and federal leaders. Uh, next question.
5: All right, I came up with another one. So you're calling for renewed investment in public health, but what do you think the chances of that actually happening are?
1: I'll tell you what, when you stop and think from a big picture about how we got into this terrible uh, public health crisis that's engulfed our country uh, for now, almost a year actually, um, it, it's because we've had this fast preventable Infectious disease pandemic being fueled by a slower, preventable chronic disease pandemic that puts so many people at risk, and all the above could have been um, prevented with a stronger public health system. Uh, as one who's been in public health for many years now, uh, when when I've uh, made the plea to budget officials for more investment, the, the reply was often, "Oh, we don't have enough money for public health and prevention." And, and now, if you look at the devastation we've had, um, the tragedy is not just that so many have suffered and died, but it's amplified by the fact that so much of this suffering and death could have been prevented. So I'm hoping with a new Congress and a new administration, there'll be a, a strong reinvestment in, in public health at the federal, state, and local levels. Because otherwise, we just risk going through this again. and um, You know, I I am, as Nicole mentioned, one who's been at this for several decades now. I was the sitting health commissioner through 9-11 and anthrax, and after that, there were public health emergency preparedness programs and funds established, also hospital preparedness and program funds. Uh, There were promises that, uh, you know, we would always be prepared going forward on, on behalf of our country. But if you track the funding over the last number of decades in public health and in those specific programs in particular, uh, they've been they've been cut back and um, and not supported uh, because people were focused on other areas. So we we just can't allow that to happen again, uh, given the devastation that we've witnessed so far.
0: Thank you. Uh, next question.
7: Um, hello. Uh, Thank you for taking my question. I had a question about. Um, the the vaccine phases or the tiers for each of the the groups that are supposed to get the vaccine and whether or not, um, how will states be able to sort of determine the population sizes of how many, uh, say first responders or how many healthcare workers? Because right now we're seeing a bottleneck um, just in the first tier. And how will states know when to pull the trigger on sort of escalating their vaccine distributions to the next tier of people?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. That's precisely what state and local public health have got to do state by state. So this is where if the general priority groups are put forward by federal groups like the uh, CDC and their advisory committee on administration practices, it's up to state and local leaders to tailor that uh, according to their own state uh, and by the dimensions that you just mentioned, Elliot. So um, I'll give you one example. Um, You know, it's relatively easy to identify who's over a certain age, but then to uh, even identify, you know, which groups qualify as frontline essential workers uh, is a matter of debate. I mean, there's general consensus that first responders and uh, uh, teachers, particularly since we want schools reopening soon, um, could be and should be part of those uh, frontline essential workers, but but other groups uh, w- w- would also uh, perhaps want to be considered a- as part of that uh, umbrella. Um, so th- this is where the federal, state, and local coordination uh, has to be really at a high level because the broad principles come down, but the implementation uh, happens at the local level, as you're implying.
7: Thank you. Uh,
0: next question.
7: Yes, thank you. Just to follow up quickly on the question, Dr. Koh, do you think that the tiering is in any way contributing to uh, vaccine sitting on the shelf, so to speak, in that uh, states or jurisdictions are, for example, setting aside large amounts for the nurse, for the, for the long-term care community, or trying to make sure they have enough to get those numbers of, of frontline workers vaccinated, and therefore um, a vaccine is sitting there and getting unused, and is is that a problem? Is that a bottleneck that you see as a, as, as a problem?
1: That's a good question. And yes, that issue has come up. So um, we obviously want some rational order of priority groups, but we also do not want uh, available vaccine being uh, disposed of because the people who appear are not in that precise group. So there's got to be some flexibility. And uh, you know, we were all concerned about some initial reports that certain clinics would end and there were available doses that were uh, discarded. That we, we cannot allow that to happen. So that, that's when uh, each clinic and each facility has got to use their best judgment and, and, and make sure that every dose available is administered.
7: Is there a lot of concern you think among the state health departments and the facilities about, or too much concern perhaps about finding themselves this gets back to the two dose questions if they switch from that kind of prioritization or holding on to it when it gets time to administer the second doses to those frontline and nursing home populations they're going to not have it is that a worry that you're seeing and is it a, is it a fair worry
1: yeah i mean so you you know we've all now heard on this call and every day uh, how complex this is how formidable the logistics are and uh, you know especially given that we want to reach perhaps 85% of the population. So uh, this is why uh, public health, which is usually invisible, is now really highly visible and and needs to be supported. It's also a dynamic process, as we've already discussed today, because uh, it's it's one thing to put out advisory guidelines on a federal level, but when the rubber meets the road in the local community, we, we get to see what works and what doesn't. So this is where We need strong public health leadership at all levels to keep adjusting the system, make sure the limited supply at any time uh, can achieve the greatest good for the greatest number and then communicate this as clearly as possible with the the backing of uh, federal leaders so we can get to the other side of this. Thank you.
0: All right, uh, I think that may be our last question. Uh,
1: Dr. Ko, do you have any final thoughts for us before we go? Well, thank you. You've all asked some um, very <laughs> very, <laughs> very uh, extensive questions. Uh, I, I think this is going to be a process. that's going to last. Uh, well, we all know it's going to be a process. Of, it's going to last for quite a while. Uh, I, I hope everybody appreciates how complex this is. And the reason why we're talking about it is this pandemic has made visible, uh, a public health system that's usually invisible, and if I can say underappreciated. To repeat a theme from earlier, prevention sounds easy, but it's not. We wish we had a cure for COVID, but we don't, even though we've had some advances in treatment. So the only way to put this pandemic behind us is maximizing the power of prevention, whether it's vaccination or mask usage or Uh, limiting crowds, um, uh, all those themes. Vaccines are not a silver bullet, by the way. So those other prevention guidelines have to continue until we get to the other side of this. And that's gonna require a lot of effort for a pretty exhausted country right now. So if we can use this as an opportunity to show the power of prevention and the importance of public health, I I think that would be uh, a, positive outcome in an otherwise very, very difficult time for our country. So thank you for your support and interest.
0: This concludes the January 8th press conference.